everyone. Welcome to Cricket with an Accent. This is Saqib hosting the show once again uh, with a big uh, tournament known as the World Cup approaching in a couple of weeks. Uh, we thought we should just revisit and create an episode based on miscellaneous memories. And who better than uh, podcast regular Vijay Arumagam uh, to break the ice on this topic. And Vijay, welcome back to the show. Can't believe we haven't recorded in close to what, three or four months? Uh, thank you, Sakib. Uh, thank you for the warm introduction. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since we've recorded, but uh, it's better late. It's better uh, late than to be never, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is uh, we don't re- usually do previews, uh, uh, you know, as I have discussed with you in Aftab in the past, because the previews have a very small shelf life, and this is not a big podcast, so you can pretty much catch this podcast on whenever. You have the time and these uh, episodes we try to create are usually from the past or timeless topics. And so, yeah, I mean, I have a, a checklist that I want to examine with you uh, and test your memory. Uh, since I know you enough, there's, n- there's not an attempt to stump you, but I think, uh, you know, your views uh, on, on all the editions of the World Cup are your favorite moments. So this is how it's going to be. So let's start with the first question. I don't know. Uh, we talk about legends, right? The Tendulkars, the Pontings, the Imrans, uh, who have left Richards, who have left, you know, such an impact on on World Cup and, and cricket's fans. Uh, when, on the flip side, are there any unsung heroes, uh, meaning players who uh, really raised their game, stepped up, met the moment, all those cliches, uh, but coming into the World Cup, they were not expected to deliver the goods. Of course, they were part of playing 11s and the squads. So, are there a couple of names that come comes to mind come to your mind when you know someone asks, "Hey, who are some of the guys who stole the show, or or an unsung hero?" Okay, so Sakib, uh, I think I'll go with the ones I've watched because it's an unsung hero. I, I can I don't want to go back to the nineteen seventy five or seventy nine or eighty three, the ones that I've not watched live. Fair so enough. my first, yeah, my first World Cup was nineteen eighty seven, the Reliance Cup, the one that happened in India and Pakistan. Um, I think one of the early games, uh, or I think we had uh, India-Australia, then we had uh, Pakistan-England, two great games. And then we had a, a New Zealand versus Zimbabwe game from Hyderabad, uh, the old uh, Fatek Maidan, which is which is known as Lal Bagdur Shastri Stadium. Um, so Zimbabwe was supposed to roll over and uh, lose the game after uh, New Zealand made 240-odd with uh, Martin Crowe scoring good runs. And they were in dire straits. They were like, uh, I think, 104 for seven. Um, Dave Houghton played a, quite a brilliant innings. And uh, a lot of people would remember that as uh, one of the greatest innings ever played. I think he scored 142. He swept, he reverse swept. And New Zealand had, uh, you know, three spinners, uh, John Bracewell, Stephen Bock, and uh, and Deepak Patel. But I'm not going to name Dave Houghton as the, the unsung hero. There was a guy who partnered with him his name was Ian Butchart. It, it created such a, an impression on me as a 10-year-old because he scored uh, 54. If someone were to look at the scorecard, they would say, what the hell? I mean, 54 of, I don't know, 70 balls. Uh, but the, the fact that it was such a thrilling game that from 104 for seven, they took it to probably 220. Um, and then, uh, and I think they kind of rolled over and he was the last man uh, who got out and they lost by three runs. Uh so to me, Ian Butchart was uh, was such. I mean, for a ten-year-old, I mean that evening. I mean, one of the very few days 
uh, when I went out and played cricket on the street, I named myself as Ian Butcher, not as, you know, uh, Dave Houghton, not the guy who scored 140 odd, but the, the guy who scored 50 odd. And then, like, you realize he was there in uh, Tunbridge, Tunbridge Wells in, uh, in that sleepy Kent town when India played Zimbabwe, the famous couple 175. Interestingly, I mean, that game, no one watched it, no one television, no one was able to watch it on TV. But in 92, when India played Zimbabwe again in Hamilton, he was there in the squad as well. Uh, they didn't bat because it was a rain-truncated game and India happened to win based on a brilliant Sachin Tendulkar innings. So to me, he was one unsung hero. Probably not many would know about him, but he had played in three World Cups. Uh, probably he's played one test match, I guess, against Pakistan. But um, he was one of those unsung heroes for me um, uh, from my first World Cup, first impression. Since you've asked for maybe two or three names, I'll choose one more. Uh, this could be a little more popular name. Um, his name was, or his name is Mike Valletta, the Western Australian, a diminutive batsman, uh, short stature, but a very, very busy player. The thing about him is um, he scored, he, he was the Australian number six in that 1987 World Cup side where they had a, a fixed Boone and Marsh, Dean Jones, Border. Then they had Steve Warren, Simon O'Donnell playing. And so he was that the busy little player who'll come and play those nice little cameos. I think in the World Cup final, he scored a 31 ball 45 at the Eden Gardens against England. And in Lahore, that famous semi-final, he scored another 48, which is probably close to run a ball. Now, again, people who have watched a lot of one day and T20 and franchise cricket now, they'll be telling what the hell is wrong with Vijay Arbungam is choosing a guy who scored 240 odds in the semi-final and final. But again, um, his career never took off. Uh, he probably retired within a year from international cricket. Uh, but he created such an impression. I mean, those who watched that Reliance Cup in India would know he was a very busy player. He got runs on both sides of the wicket. He was a fast runner between the wickets. A short guy, sh short statured, but he had quite a few, you know, uh, attractive shots. Like, so again... He was not an all-time great in Australia's a land of Greg Chappells and, um, and Alan Borders and Don Bradmans. But, you know, you asked about unsung heroes. I would like to pick these two, Ian Butchard from Zimbabwe and Mike Valletta from from Australia. And Butchard didn't win much, but Mike Valletta was part of that uh, World Cup winning squad for Australia in 1987. So I'll get my bias in the way right away. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, Valletta deserves a fair shout right there, but Simon O'Donnell is one of my favorite cricketers of that era. And as a young boy, when I had hair, you know, that's a hairstyle a lot of us, the wedge cut, we all tried to copy. Uh, he also bowled a spectacular spell in a final, right? He gave, what, 35 runs and got Graham Gooch's wicket, even bowled a maiden in there. So what do you yep. remember of his contribution? And then also uh, talk about uh, him, him sacrificing his wicket in the semifinals against uh, Pakistan. In Lahore, uh, I think Simon O'Donnell. Uh, he was, I mean, along with Steve Waugh, the two founding fathers of you know backhanded slow balls from that Bob Simpson era, right? Bob Simpson and Alan Border. Again, cricket has to be a position as a captain's uh, game, right? I should have called it as an Alan Borders team, but Bob Simpson contributed so much as probably the first professional coach, along with Mickey Stewart from England. Um, he contributed so much to the modern ways of playing one-day cricket in terms of how to do running between the wickets, how to play certain shots in certain ways. So for that, these two youngsters, Steve Waugh from New South Wales and Simon O'Donnell from Victoria, were two, uh, two of the, the young prodigies that they were out there. And uh, of course, Steve Waugh, uh, you know, 
went on to become a much better uh, batsman uh, internationally. Simon O'Donnell, you know, right? We had an unfortunate um, uh, date with cancer, um, and then like now he's a, a popular AFL and, and a cricket commentator. Yeah, but uh, again, yeah, Simon O'Donnell was a sensation in that World Cup because um, he was a lusty hitting player. He had more strokes than Steve Waugh, I would say, in terms of hitting power. Uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. For younger audiences, it's probably younger Mitch Marsh than what Mitch Marsh has become right now for Australia, uh, another WA player. So, yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a, he had a, a pretty good tournament and uh, uh, he, he, he excelled with, I think his slower balls were a little more pronounced than even Steve Wars. Uh, and you're right about, about the very famous, uh, uh, you know, Lahore semi-final, which, you know, uh, we can talk a little bit about the game a little later if uh, we have time. Uh, he he literally uh, sacrificed his wicket because uh, he knew uh, Steve Waugh was well set and he was hitting the ball and they ended up on the same side. Uh, but then he sacrificed his wicket so that Steve Waugh could be there. And that proved very decisive because Steve Waugh took 18 runs of Salim Jafar in the final over bold on that day. Um, yeah, like he was a... He was a very popular. I mean, and uh, Pakistan slow lost ball. by seventeen or eighteen runs, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Pakistan lost. So it's 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 a bit of a bit of a, an irony, and also uh, he contributed a fair bit uh, in that uh, indoor one day as well, which is very close. Um, you know, what shall I say? A thirty ball, um, thirty over game, right? Uh, he took a couple of crucial wickets as well. Um, in fact, he, if I'm right, he opened up uh, New Zealand when they got uh, got off to a very fast start. And they were going hammer and tongs, chasing down the 199 that Australia had set. He was the one who took those couple of wickets. Very interestingly, Australia had one more all-rounder, Tom Moody. But um, I mean, so Australia usually Australia plays its cricket based on great batsmen and great bowlers. They never go for all-rounders. But that was one of those unique sides where they had Steve Waugh, Simon O'Donnell, and Tom Moody. So it was a young side. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember a lot about the hairstyle. Maybe. I, I looked at cricket as cricket, not as, you know, style icons. Maybe <laughs> you've got a better taste than me. I don't remember whether he was popular as a, uh, I mean, style icon. But yeah, I remember his cricket. And a little later, he scored the, then the fastest 17-ball 50 in Sharjah in 1919, the Australasia Cup. So yeah, look, I mean, he was a look, very I mean, lusty hitter. I mean, I wouldn't say he was style icon, but I think you are a product of your own ecosystem, you know, especially when you're young you know, a 10 to 14-year-old gap. That's when O'Donnell, you know, pretty much <clears throat> graced our imaginations on the TV screen. We saw him a few times, uh, you know, in the Triangular Series. And then he had an unbelievable run, I think, in Sharjah against Sri Lanka. After, I think, post-cancer, he scored a fastest 50 or something. So, yeah, I mean, you know, around you, some older boys, everybody's trying to mimic his and McDermott's action. And then, uh, you know, uh, the hair is flowing. Yeah, but you, you step out of it and maybe a lot of people don't even remember him. So that's that's how reality is kind of blurred uh, in, in memory. So let's take this forward, right? Uh, so unsung heroes, if that's one side of the coin, the other side is legends. So instead of the obvious legends, let's, let's try to put your memory to test here. Uh, are there any legends or ODI greats who just didn't have a great World Cup overall resume, except maybe one match here or there is fine, but were there players who were really good in the format but uh, seldom performed uh, on the big show? Do you have a list or do you have some nominees who come to mind right away? Yeah, I mean, definitely I'd like to start with uh, Inzamamul Haq because 
if you look at Inzama, um, he had two of those fantastic innings in the 92 World Cup, like the the 60 of 37 balls he scored at Eden Park against New Zealand. One of the great innings because there was Javed Mayanda on the other side and they chased down chased down that improbable target uh, for 1992 with Moin Khan hitting that famous six so long off. And then he scored a, a very good 40-odd uh, in the final uh, against England. Again, um, Javed Mianda and Imran were slowly building up for um, uh, Inzamam al-Haq and uh, Bazi Makram to finish it off for Pakistan to get to 249. And that kind of led to Imran Khan even stating that um, he was a better batsman than even Sachin Tendulkar was. Back then, mind you, Sachin Tendulkar had already scored three test hundreds both in England and Australia. And Imran, being an astute observer, of course, he backed somebody like Mansoor Akhtar for, for a different reason. He felt he was that great. So for, for a guy like Inzamam to have that sort of a start with those two brilliant innings, he played in the 96 World Cup, 99 and 2003. He it didn't set the World Cups on fire after that. Um, yeah, 99, he played some good innings, but 96, again, it was a bit of a patchy tournament. And 2003 was like, like telephone numbers when he was past, he was not really past his best because he scored some runs in India after that in 2004 and five as well. So it's a bit of a strange career for him. A great player, a great one-day player for a very long time, uh, though he never reached to the the heights of uh, Tendulkar, Lara in a one-day game. He was still a very, very great player in the middle overs. He could score nonchalantly against spinners and he could hit the quicks and stuff. Of course, his running was a bit of a concern. But yeah, for that sort of a person, he didn't score many runs. And I think his average is almost 23 in World Cups, which is pretty disappointing for a, a truly great one-day player. Um, and if I think about someone else, it's a bit, I'm going to come up with a very strange name. Um, Desmond Haynes. See, Desmond Haynes was the, the benchmark for one-day cricket in terms of centuries, because he had those 1700s, nine against Australia. Everyone knew and he had scored. Back then, he used to score one-day hundreds in Australia as well with those big outfields. And, you know, in Australia, back then, the ball used to seem around. So as an opener... Wasn't there... Sorry to cut you. Wasn't there a time when Haynes and Richards were, like, competing for ODI records, right? It seemed like they yeah. were the ones who yeah. were scoring more runs and hundreds. Yeah, he had, he had the record. He had 17 one-day hundreds, right? So, so when Tendulkar took over, uh, 1800 was phenomenal. So for such a great player, he's got only one one-day hundred that was in Karachi against uh, Sri Lanka, the same game where Vivian Richards scored his 181. Um, so yeah, look, I think for a for a player of his caliber, I don't think he's averaging as poorly as Imran. He's probably averaging 36, 37. But his his one-day record overall is around 41. So for a a truly icon of the one-day cricket and the real pioneer of probably till then he was the greatest one-day opener of all time, um, give or take. Of course, Graham Gooch had played some terrific innings. Then Sachin Tendulkar became an own opener, right? He was not the conventional opener, right? So Sachin Tendulkar probably took the mantle away from him. The point I'm trying to make is for such a, a great, great player in one-day cricket, such a pioneer ahead of time, because people wouldn't understand now, right now, people are averaging 60, uh, 55, and, uh, you know, a 1700s will look like a blip but back then it meant a lot I mean back then the average score was 200 180 was a match winning score on a lot of grounds and boundaries were big it's a different it was almost played at a test match pace and with test match uh, conventions so for a player of that caliber 
with that sort of record, it's a bit surprising that uh, because you know somebody like you know Ramiz Raja is averaging. You know, I just looked it up: fifty-three, fifty-four, with some good hundreds in World Cup cricket. So, like with no disrespect to Ramiz Raja, um, you know. Haynes not averaging well, of course. The first two World Cups for him, he was a pretty young player in 17 and 83. Had some wickets which were little like cabbage patches. So in 87, so look, but again, his terrific record overall for that, I would like to say that. The other name I would like to say is probably, I'm going to pick a bowler, Sean Pollock. Surprisingly, he averages in the mid-30s for a chap who's averaging around 20 on. Because Pollock was a very effective bowler both in 96, 99 and, you know, 2003. And uh, especially in 99, when they played with those uh, white jukes for the first time, the ball did a lot early summer um, in England. 96, Pollock had a good in-dipper cutter. Um, and then 2003 was a bit disappointing at home because he's probably passed his best. And then, unfortunately, with captaincy and also... That's a bit of a strange, another guy who could have done a little more. Um, but I would like to believe that, you know, having watched a fair bit of Pollock in 99, he beat the bat a fair bit and stuff. But again, I'm, I'm just, since you asked, like, you know, I'm just picked three names like uh, Injamam, uh, Desi Haynes and Sean Pollock as three great guys. Unfortunately, the stats don't back up their credentials in World Cups, which otherwise, you know, which, which are, you know, it, it, in another, it, otherwise they've got a very very stellar record in ODI cricket. That's a great point, and uh, and Desmond Haynes is more like a trailblazer. I don't really care when we do <clears throat> uh, comparison across generations because of games and everything, game equipment and fields, whatever, right? The size and the rules change. So I, to me, the center point is what were you doing in your time, and he was clearly uh, someone to model your game around. His results spoke volumes. Uh, and how good he was. And for Inzimam, I'll only say, if you have to play two great knocks, and might as well be, you know, the knocks that get you the World Cup. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, these, are, these are some very informative questions. So let's talk about a game. Uh, there, there have been many a game. So since I started doing a Hindi film podcast, uh, if there was a game in your memory or two, which uh, should be converted into a film or a proper documentary, uh, do you have a quick winner in your mind, like the game that has the ups and downs or that's just occupied uh, a good place in your memory? It, it could be from last World Cup. It could be again from 87, 92. Uh, do you have a nominee right away? Yeah, it's a, well, I mean, look, I, I, know I don't want to bash Amitabh Bachchan and your film fandom, but uh, I'll keep it to cricket. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, a lot of people would talk about the 99 World Cup semi-final, the very famous semi-final and arguably the greatest game of uh, one-day cricket between Australia and South Africa at Edgbaston, or the recent 2019 um, final between England and New Zealand at Lords, which went all the way to the Super Over and uh, a tie and stuff, right? Um, you know, those two are really good candidates, but I think I've said this on the other part as well, 81 All Out uh, by Sidhvi as well. For me, the way I look at sport, I'm, I don't believe a lot in luck or fortune. I mean, if you're a great side, you'll have to win those quarterfinals and semifinals and get to the finals. And if you have a similar set of players, if you failed, 
four years later, you come back to win it. I mean, that's the expectation of a, an Olympic champion, a World Cup champion, a world champion in any sport, team sport or an in individual sport. I think the 87 World Cup, um, Pakistan were the red-hot favorites. Um, Imran Khan's Pakistan in, in, in home conditions were almost unbeatable. And even in India, right, because they kind of, they had wiped the floor with India with the 5-1 win in the one-day series, even in test cricket. Imran's side had beaten India in India, England in England. These were the stated objectives of their captain, Imran Khan. And winning the World Cup was the third aim, and he was pretty much going to leave after that. Um, and I think when when the when when the tournament was announced, India played all its games in India. Pakistan played all its games, Pool B in Pakistan, and Pakistan was an absolute fortress back then. It, it's very it was very difficult to beat them over there. Um, and then uh, they had a great side, a very good bowling attack, a, a solid strong batting. And led very, very uh, astutely by Imran, and he had his own instincts about how to run the game. And Australia had never won an ODI game on Pakistani soil, and they had played all those games in India, their pool games, because they were on this side. Um, so to go to the semi-final, to the Lions' den, um, the expectation was Pakistan will beat uh, will beat Australia. And even before the tournament started, the expectation was it was going to be in Pakistan versus India final at the Eden Gardens. And Pakistan were the favorites, that, was, that, that sort of build-up. But this was a very young Australian side that was building up really well. And they had their own strategy, though the tournament was played in, in October, November. Some sides were, I mean, those were day games where they were winning the toss and inserting the opponents in. Uh, Bob Simpson and Border were batting first. And they, they had their set template of their six, seven batsmen and what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. So going to Lahore, um, Australia won the toss, but it's one of those days where whatever that could have gone wrong, that went wrong for Pakistan. Imran had a, a stomach bug, so he was still bowling well. Wazim Akram, unfortunately, had a bit of an off day. And as people say, uh, Salim Yusuf, uh, back then, the helmet was not that popular for wicketkeepers. He didn't, had he worn one, that could have been the difference because when Tosif Ahmed bowled one of those balls, uh, Boone tried to cut it, and he got a very rare... Uh, knock on his face and he lost a couple of teeth and he was injured and he had to be, uh, you know, he had to leave the field and Javed Mianda kept the wickets for almost 30 overs. He had a brilliant stumping, but he missed a few balls and stuff. So it's it's never easy with a, a part-time keeper in a World Cup semi-final. Then as look, luck would have it, uh, Dickie Bird was one of the umpires and Abdul Khalid pulled one of those peach of a googly and Dean Jones had no idea what it was, and he was dead plum, and he wouldn't give it. It's one of those days where things just were going on and on, and then Australia was nicely building up with Valletta playing the innings, and then Salim Jaffa bowled the last over, and they took 18. Um, so if you look at it, there are a few things that haven't gone well, and then Pakistan batted. Uh, you know, They were 25 at 3 with a, with a run out, and Salim Malik hitting out a, a great player who didn't fire on that day. Then Imran Khan and Javed Mianda are building a nice little partnership in their own style. And again, for once, Dickie Bird, the greatest umpire, he made the second mistake when Imran went for the sweep. He was nowhere close to the... The bat was nowhere close to the ball and he raised a finger. Uh, Imran left in a half. Then Mianda tried a little bit with the Ejaz Ahmed, but Bruce Reed and McDermott came and knocked over them and they lost. The important part, as KP Mohan had written, 
for the sports. I was covering from there. The crowds were magnificent. They couldn't believe that. They didn't believe Pakistan was going to lose. I mean, they were chanting, I think, uh, Allah, Akbar, Pakistan, Jitata, which means like, you know, God is great. Pakistan was going to win or will win, whatever the exact Urdu translation. This was when Abdul Qadir, who had heroically helped Pakistan to beat West Indies in a pool game in Lahore by hitting a six of court walls and stuff. And an injured Salim Yusuf would come to bat, you know, in a gritty fashion. They were literally willing them on. And it was not to be Australia, but a little too professional to, you know, Pakistan lost by 18 runs, as you rightly said. But I think I, for me, the biggest thing was when Imran Khan went to receive the the loser's check, as they call it, from the president, the, the, the then Pakistani president, Ziaul Haq, you could see the sadness in his face. And, you know, it was it was so palpable. I've always said, if a, a child has to learn sport, watch Imran's face after losing the 87 Lahore semifinal or watch Richie McCaw, the, McCaw, the, the New Zealand all-black captain after he lost to uh, France in the all-blacks, sorry, uh, France in the Millennium Stadium in Wales in the 2007 World Cup. You could see the press or the, the, the television speech when he was almost choking and, you know, controlling his tears back. Anyway, the thing was Imran was wearing that uh, T-shirt or an undershirt which had corner tigers. So, you know, he was expected to win that game. And, and again, as I said, he felt the whole country was behind them and somehow, you know, things didn't work out. The reason why I think that will be a great movie because as as a Greek tragedy, you could say it was a great tragedy, but five years later or four years later because Australia hosted the World Cup 91-92, Imran wore that uh, famous corner tiger uh, for that wacker game against Australia, right? Um and he gave that famous speech and then he went to the press with, and he said, don't worry about the no balls and whites, bowl as fast as possible, which Richie Benno said on air and Wazim Akram and Akib Javid bowl really quickly and Australians found it a bit too hot. Ever since that, Pakistan turned the corner and then they beat New Zealand in Christchurch. Uh, I think they beat uh, Sri Lanka after that. Then they beat New Zealand twice and they beat England. Again, Imran wore that uh, T-shirt to the final and in chapel asked that question. So like, so it's a great story that, you know, the, the T-shirt or the, the, the imprint uh, that was emblazoned on the T-shirt that was supposed to give Pakistan the corner Tigers thing in 1987 in Lahore didn't happen. Had it not happened, had it finished there, that would have still been a great story. But as the movies, as you talk about, right, the sequel that happened four, four and a half years later in Australia. So to me, coming back to that, that Lahore semifinal is probably the only cricketing event, I would say, the better team didn't win. Of course, you could say the 1983 World Cup final. That is a genuine upset because there was, you know, West Indies in India in 83 was very different. But the 87 Australia was kind of very different. You know, that was a neutral game at Lords. It's different. But here, going to Pakistan in front of their crowds, when they didn't believe as, as a country, as a population, that Imran couldn't lose it. And they lost. So that was, to me, that was... I would like to con- compare that to some of the great FIFA World Cup games and stuff. So for me, Sakib, if I were to make a movie, I would make on that. I, of course, a younger generation would argue the 99. Of course, I would like to consider the 99 semifinal as one of the greatest or the arguably the greatest game of the 2019 final. But for me, that 87 uh, Lahore, Imran, and then the redemption with the same T-shirt or similarly printed T-shirt four and a half years later in Australia, that makes it for a, 
a wonderful story. And trust me, that was the you know Australia's first ever win, an ODI win on Pakistani soil, and then they flew back to Calcutta to beat England. And that's again a great story because that's Australia's uh, first big moment under the border. Uh, um, and the Simpson era as well. So yeah, it's a great story for Australia as a young nation. Young, when I say young nation, Australia is probably the oldest cricket nation. A young fledgling side at that time, and then Imran's great side uh, to be denied, and then Imran got his sweet rewards four and a half years later. Yeah, that's that's what my pick, Sakib. Yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of old memories come. Sorry, back, sorry, right? sorry, Sakib. One one more thing. The, the movie part I forgot to tell. Mm-hmm. There was one game that happened before. Um, that Lahore semi-final was Pakistan played Sri Lanka in a in a league game in Faisalabad. Uh, Sri Lankans were really struggling to pick Abdul Kader, and uh, for some in- inexplicable reason, Kader was starting to roll on the floor and laugh. I mean, that game was televised live, and then um, you won't believe. Like, I-, I didn't know why he was laughing. Then we realized he was laughing because the Sri Lankans were not picking him, so he was literally laughing and uh, joking. And I think some people in Pakistan felt it was almost like karma coming back to bite them because you don't make fun of somebody like what Abdul Qadir did. I mean, you know, they were decent players. Dulip Mendes, um, you know, Arjuna Ranatunga, you know, those sort of players. And he was laughing at them um, when they couldn't pick his uh, googlies, especially. So I think there was a theory in Pakistan that, you know, this is how you insulted a team. You're not supposed to do that to another cricket team. And, you know, then this went against you in the semifinals. So there's some conspiracy theories. And of course, typically as the soap opera happens in Pakistan, there are a few people who felt that game was fixed because in Pakistan, it's either Pakistan wins or they fix the game. They don't lose. That's the mindset a lot of people have, especially when they had a great team. So that all adds to the nice little soap opera uh, feeling as well, Sakib. Exactly. Uh, I have a lot of memories too of that World Cup. Uh, and as I've told you and also mentioned in a podcast, I was in Lahore uh, when that match happened and I was with my aunt and my cousin. We were there to attend a wedding. Uh, they were there to attend a wedding and my father injected me, say, take him along. And my father's hope was if you're there, we can watch a match uh, at the Gaddafi Stadium. But uh, things didn't work out. Tickets were sold out. So, we were shopping that day. My aunt was. So I watched that match in different places. Uh, the host, who the family that were hosting us, I watched, uh, I think, uh, the first half of the match there. Then I was in different shopping markets. And when uh, Pakistan lost, like I've mentioned, I think in the last Wicked podcast, when they had me as a as a panelist. So yeah, that was, that, that's a memory. I don't remember much of the game, but that memory is everlasting for me. When the TV, all TVs shut down at the same time. And if you feel like something bad had happened, and of course, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't hide my joy uh, as a 10-year-old, but I was in awe of the moment that the home team has lost and it was, and you don't realize how big of an opportunity it was as a 10-year-old boy. So next day, I think the semifinal was uh, in in Mumbai when uh, India uh, lost to England. And uh, let's talk about that match as well, because that was a big final that was projected. Uh, talk about Graham Gooch and, and that innings and talk about Kapil Dev's captaincy because a lot was said that time. Uh, how fresh is that match in your mind or how much have you read about that match? Because that's, again, so relevant to what happened a day earlier in Lahore. The big final that was meant to be didn't materialize and it was England-Australia playing for the big World Cup. 
uh, you know, four days later in Kolkata? Yeah, look, I think once for India, there was a lot of joy when Pakistan lost because Pakistan were India's bugbear or the boogeyman team back then, uh, especially even in India, right? Forget Sharjah, they used to beat India so comfortably in India, right? So um, given that when Pakistan lost, there was a feeling, okay, if India could beat England at the one kid in Bombay, back then it was Bombay, not Mumbai, then India is going to the finals at Eden Gardens and there's nothing much to fear about Australia, right? Because Australia is still a young side. Yeah, it's a one-off upset against uh, um, Pakistan and Lahore. So the World Cup could be ours, India's, right? You know, you're going to win back-to-back World Cups. So it was a huge expectation. But it's a bit of a context. It was a bit of a noise because <clears throat> Sunil Gavaskar, um, just for some of your younger listeners who might not know, he had boycotted by then the Eden Gardens as a venue because 83-84, um, <clears throat> he lost and uh, you know there was some crowd trouble. Even his wife was abused. Um, and then in 84-85 against England, the slow batting, the famous Phil Edmonds newspaper reading, and then again, crowds were very nasty towards him and comments. And so he felt uh, he had had enough of the Eden Gardens and their crowd behavior, which is a bit unfortunate. So he decided to skip when India, before this World Cup in Pakistan was in India, the 1987, the second test match after the Madras test, was at the Eden Gardens and Gavaskar was, made himself unavailable, uh, which meant Arun Lal opened with Srikanth. And interestingly, Imran Khan won the toss and inserted India in because Imran felt uh, without Gavaskar, India was a bit uh, soft at the top. <clears throat> anyway, so the semi-final was at Bombay. And to give a bit of context, Gavaskar had helped India to get to the semi-final in a way because had India, India played its last pool game against New Zealand um, uh, in Nagpur, where they had to win uh, by improving their run rate because otherwise India was going to finish second in the pool. That means they would have to go to Lahore to meet Pakistan in a semi-final, which India desperately wanted to avoid because India wanted to play a home semi-final and, and avoid Pakistan as much as they could. So uh, Chetan Sharma uh, <clears throat> uh, took a hat-trick and Gavaskar scored the whirlwind, whirlwind 100 despite having a fever. Um, so there were a lot of expectations that he was going to be a, a main man. But again, um, Graham Gooch had plans for the Indian left-arm spinners, and which we didn't know at that time, but then we got to know a little later after the game that he was using a lot of the left-arm bowlers for two days in the nets at the one kid, and he was sweeping them all over. So he wanted different kinds of left-arm spinners so that Maninder Singh and Ravi Shastri could be negated. Um, and interestingly, Sachin Tendulkar was a ball boy for that game, uh, that semi-final. So Gooch started a sweep, and it was a little odd because the sweeps were, he was sweeping off the length, and he was sweeping uh, fortify, uh, he was sweeping, you know, hitting up in the air. So you could sense that it was a bit of a, an annoyance, and I'm told reliably by people who were there, the North Stand, which is the most expensive or the most educated stand in, at the one kid, they were giving advice to Kapil in terms of how to set the field and so forth. So England, uh, you know, of course, Gatting also played well. England got to a, a very competitive uh, 254, right? And uh, Maninder got a fair bit of a tap and even Ravi Shastri wasn't that impressive uh, by their standards. Then Gavaskar got out to defraiters early on to a beauty. Uh, it's a good ball from a cricketing perspective. There were a few tongues started to wag saying, did he deliberately get out? so that he didn't have to play at the at the Eden Gardens, I mean, which was there in the Tamil press and other things. There were a few whispers. Um, I think even India Today would have published an article, could have, I think they did publish an article. But 
but of course india tried its best with um, azhar and uh, and again the other unfortunate part dilip engsaka who was the main batsman for india he he was ill on that morning so india had to bring in chandrakant pandit so it's like kiran more and chandrakant pandit i mean chandrakant pandit was never going to be a like for like replacement for vengsaka so i kind of showed india didn't probably have the batting depth to bring in another quality batsman so yeah look and then kapil promoted himself ahead of ravishas and he was hitting hemmings and others again um hemmings getting moved himself to uh, the mid wicket boundary and apparently the north stand people were shouting at kapil saying fielder is moved and kapil being kapil can be a bit impetuous he played a a wild slog sweep to that and getting <clears throat> took a catch very comfortably down his throat so again crowds weren't happy and then ravi shastri tried his best india lost comfortably with 35 runs in the end i still remember the the sadness in mlj shimas voice because back then he was along with tiger patari were the the ones who were giving the highlights right he just came on the show and said so finally india's out of the world cup so it's a, a tinge of sadness because it was a missed opportunity because india were touted to be in the final but pakistan were the favorites india was probably the second favorite because west indies were missing a few players because of the home conditions and stuff and especially when pakistan got knocked out by australia india should have grabbed the opportunity against england but let's get this straight and england were a, people don't remember this right a lot of people think england were allergic to one day cricket and stuff but england had played more one day cricket than anyone else john players uh, uh, the league tournament in the 1960s the sunday league Uh, though the official one day cricket started in 71 they played a lot of one day cricket in the uk in the county system which meant all these players had a good amount of exposure on the contrary you have to give the context about india right india though the world cup win in 83 was great india didn't take one day cricket seriously for a very very long time because india was a proper test playing country india wouldn't even send their team to australia to the benzron ages world series as a third team india would go there only if they're there as a test nation test tour and they'll play the tri series so india and england were those you know sort of slightly uh, posh test sides but england of course had a lot of domestic one day cricket indian domestic cricket wasn't that well attuned for uh, uh, what shall i say international cricket so england if you look at it 75 79 83 87 92 they were in all the semi finals including two finals so England were a very professional outfit and they had a couple of good spinners in uh, Hemmings and Embury and they had some good seamers. It's a good balanced side. Um, it's just that they had a great tactics in terms of Graham Gooch doing it and Kapil was probably a bit tactically short. Hmm. That's, that's a brilliant recollection. recollection. Uh, so you did mention ML, uh, you know, Jessima and the sadness in the commentary box. So let's use that opportunity uh, for the next question. Uh, are there any seminal moments from the booth that have influ- influenced your cricket you know watching experience uh for a long time especially coming out of the world cup are there any you know legendary lines or just the tension of a match uh be it your favorite in chapel be it tony greg be it harsha bhogle are there one or two moments that stand out that you would like to share with us here uh on cricket with an accent I got a funny story this is about Ian Chappell right when in the 92 India Pakistan World Cup game at SCG so you know that famous uh, Javed Miandar Kiran Mohre incident happened when 
more and Mianda had a bit of an Aji Baj in terms of chatter, and then Mianda started to jump up and down, and umpires had to come and separate them and stuff. I think Ian Chappell was on air, and he said something like, because umpire Shepard was there along with, uh, I think it was Steve Buckner. Yes, Steve Buckner and umpire Shepard. Definitely Shepard. I think the other one is Buckner, the two best umpires in the world. Um, I think Ian Chappell said something like, the umpires wouldn't know the language these blokes speak to each other. Now, I was, what, 14, 15, living in a, a small South Tamil Nadu town of Tutukudi. I didn't know what blokes were. I heard it as blacks. Can you believe it? I said, the umpire wouldn't know what these blacks are talking about. I was like, what, what language these blacks are talking about? I was like, what? He said blacks? But luckily, was, I, I asked my mother, uh, what did he mean? And she said, blokes. And I had to ask her what blokes meant. Right, so it's a bit funny right now. If you look back, like we use blokes so commonly, but again, Sakiban, like you, you're from South Delhi. I'm not so privileged to know those things when I was 14 or 15. The other thing I'd like to really remember, I've tweeted about it a fair bit. Um, to me, that India Pakistan again, 96 in Bangalore, the quarter final. Um, Tony Gregg and Ravi Shastri were for the end, and Wazim Sirwakar Yunus and Akib Javid were batting. And by then, we knew India was going to win, Pakistan was not going to get those runs. And, you know, Akib and Bakar were trying their best to get ones and twos, but, you know, India was bowling well and it was beyond their reach. So I think <clears throat> in the end, Ravi says it was, you know, it's about to finish. And um, Ravi Shasi came to that, you know, in his, you know, Prabhara said, it'll be curtains for Pakistan, you know, you know, India would have knocked them out and, you know, out of their own World Cup. So the word, it'll be curtains for Pakistan, you know, I kind of felt, you know, he spoke for a billion Indians, right? He, he, he just represented what every Indian fan felt because, again, beating Pakistan in 96 was such a big thing. Between 86 and 96, of course, India beat Pakistan in the 92 World Cup. Otherwise, pretty much Sharjah, India, wherever, they were dominating India. So beating them in the quarterfinal, knocking them out of a knock, knockout game, and Ravi should say, it'll be curtains for Pakistan was, was such a seminal moment. The other thing I'd like to talk about is the 99 World Cup um, semi-final, the last leg, I mean, when that last segment, when South Africa were close to chasing the Australian target down at Edgbaston, Bill Laurie and uh, Mike Proctor were there. I don't know how many of uh, your listeners uh, remember Mike Proctor because a lot of people would remember him as a, a match referee and others, but he was a great all-rounder back then and then uh, yeah, he was he was a great commentator, but I think there was a little bit of an argy bargy going on between uh, Bill Laurie and Mike Proctor. It was obvious because <clears throat> the first two balls in the Dover, Closner will hit a boundary. I think I think even before that, there'll be a miss hit that'll go, um, and Bill Laurie will say that's a miss hit, and uh, Proctor will say miss it. Oh, any hit doesn't matter; it's a boundary. He'll say. Then the two boundaries that he'll strike. Uh, closed a one to cover, no one moved, and then the next one to the long off. Uh, both of Fleming when Fleming was bowling around the wicket, Marco was at long on, couldn't even move an inch. And, and for both the reaction from Mike Proctor was like he was gunning for a fight. He was literally giving it back to Bill Laurie and saying, oh, uh, what kind of shot is that? Uh, and then they say, bang, bang, two boundaries. You you knew it was it was like a, a Roman amphitheater and you know Mike Proctor felt he was the lion and who was literally about to consume the Christian in the name of I'm trying to bring my Roman history 
But then, of course, you could say that Bill Laurie had his last laugh because then he'll say that when the scores were tied, even now if Klunzner gets out, Australia will still win. He'll say that, right, for the, the audiences. But I think the great story about that is it's not just what they said. And I'm told that he was upset for almost the next 20 minutes. And a lot of people, including Harsha Bogle, written about it, talked about it. So they, I think they had two boxes. They were the world feed and there was another feed, uh, which was the, the sky feed. We got the world feed uh, in India on, on ESPN and Star. So people said for 20, 30 minutes was terribly upset, literally dazed and sitting there. So that was a, 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 a great moment, I would say. And then like... Um, Let me ask I'd you one like, thing. Uh, sure. Sorry. Did the better team win that match? <laughs> um, absolutely, right? Uh, I... Again, your viewers might not agree with it. Some might abuse me. I'll say Australia deservedly won that semi-final because that's how, you know, if you had watched test matches and one-day cricket between those two nations in the mid-90s, 97 onwards, Australia had the edge. They knew how to turn it around. Had South Africa been straight smart, they would have knocked Australia out at Headingley in the Super 6 game. But they couldn't because South Africa back then didn't know how to finish off Australia. You know, Steve was got the brilliant 120. In that case, they wouldn't have faced Australia in the semi-final, but they faced, and again, right? Australia knew how to do it, and you know they had a great start, and then 52 for none. Then Vaughan came. I would still believe that was a better side won, and the way they dismantled Pakistan, right? The way they did right in the final. That Kane tells you. Again, I'd like to say that 2019 final between England and New Zealand. To me, New Zealand were very lucky to be in the finals. They played a great final, but England were the deserving winners. Whether it's the 2019 final or the 1999 semi-final, the better sides won. Of course, we could talk about luck and stuff. That's what I'm saying. 87 semi-final is a different. 99, yeah, South Africans could feel hard done by, but the better side won. No, it was a tie, but the better side went to the finals. Yeah, hopefully <clears throat> your Twitter timeline after people tune into this episode will have a few things come your way, but I'm sure uh, you you will match the moment. Uh, uh, so, I, actually, I felt. I mean, I, I mean, uh, uh, Australia and Pakistan were my second team back then, but I remember screaming so much, you know, Australia winning. But I kind of knew they'll show Cronier and Ian Chappell was in the box, you know, having watched pretty much all the South Africa Australia games in the nineties, like under Mark Taylor and then Steve Waugh. You knew that Australians knew how to win, and which they did. Um, some would say it's a tie, but yeah, the street smartness and the game awareness. Um, it's quite incredible. Yeah. Uh, sure. So let's uh, keep going forward uh, with a couple more questions before we, uh, before we wrap the podcast up. Uh, talk about the Sri Lanka-Zimbabwe 300-run chase at Hobart in 91-92. That, that has to be a seminal moment in cricket uh, because that kind of score was never chased down if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. What do you remember? I mean, was that match live uh, uh, in 91-92 or is, is that match that we no. read about? No, it was not live. We got, uh, uh, we got, but it was, we knew, we knew when it was happening. It was one of the early games, right? Um, um, it, it's not in Hobart. It happened in New Zealand uh, on the western coast, a town called New Plymouth, a small, beautiful little town. I think the beauty of the ground is, um, I think the ground's name is Pukakara Park. Um, I hope I'm getting the Maori name in Pukakura Park. It's uh, supposed to be a, a beautiful little botanical garden and uh, and the ground is nestled amidst that. Because when Dennis Lilly and Australians played there in the late 70s, I think they had one of those side games and apparently Dennis Lilly 
felt. Uh, the park was more so enticing to go and take a walk and stuff. Um, we we of course we didn't. Uh, we probably got some. I don't know whether you even got TV clips. I don't remember. But the thing was, Andy Flower scored a, a brilliant hundred, and I think what I remember very well back then was the Andy Wallace hitting, because he scored what a forty-five ball eighty-three. Back then, that sort of a, a strike rate was unheard of, and uh, uh, he <clears throat> took it to you know some of the Sri Lankans like Champakarama Naika and others, right? Uh, so to score three hundred and twelve, but it's the the point is it was a tiny postcard postcard sized ground, which means outfield was small, and to get to three hundred and twelve was unheard of. But the Sri Lankans, being Sri Lankans, they um, they matched it, and you know now we got uh, you know um, Arjuna Ranatung. Of course, he played one of those brilliant things. But I, I think one of the sixes, you know, even a miss it would go to a six sort of a thing. Like so, it was such a tiny um, postcard postcard kind of a ground. And again, Zimbabwe had a reasonable bowling attack, but um, Brandes, uh, um, Jarvis, and others. But the point is. Given the fact that I think the conditions were very different between Australia and New Zealand back then, I think in Australia uh, with the Kookaburra white balls, it was late Feb, um, though late pitches, the same movement was a lot more in Australian grounds back then. But New Zealand, for some reason, the pitches looked more brown. Um, and I think Martin Crow had asked for those slower pitches for those, you know, dibbly dobbly bowlers like Gavin Larson and uh, Harris and stuff. So, plus, we didn't watch it live, but uh, one of the games for which we, we didn't have, but it was big in the news, uh, you know, 312 was chased down and uh, and so forth. Uh, but it took ages because I still remember, I knew because back then, most of the tiny grounds in which the games were played, we never got um thing like, for example, this was New Plymouth, this wasn't covered. India, Sri Lanka, Makai game, only two balls that wasn't covered. Uh, West Indies played Sri Lanka in a place called Berry in South Australia, but that wasn't covered. Um, and then England played Zimbabwe in Albury, which is border between New South Wales and Victoria. Apparently, that was covered with the Sky News, Sky Sports in UK, but it was not covered by any, anybody else. And then even games like uh, England played Sri Lanka in. <clears throat> In, in in Ballarat, which is like a coal town near Melbourne, that wasn't covered. That was covered only for that local channel. So some of these games weren't covered. But thankfully, I think there are some, uh, uh, you know, some really great YouTubers who've gone out of the way to collect these games. And this game has got some, you know, short videos. So we could we could be really thankful for that. But yeah, but I, I wish we could have watched the whole game. But uh, yeah, look, I think tiny ground, but uh, some good memories about reading about it and discussing it stuff, uh, but we didn't watch it live, Sakit. Yeah, and I apologize to the listeners, you know. Uh, I kind of relied on my memory, which is pretty weak, I guess, so <laughs> it wasn't Hobart, but yeah, thank you for remembering uh, a lot of details about that match. And it was a similar moment, uh, you know, when uh, South Africa and Australia were part of that, you know, high-scoring game in 2006, I believe. So yeah, that was... Uh, Back back in ninety one ninety two, chasing a three hundred was monumental. So let's oh, wrap absolutely. This, let's yeah, yeah let, let's wrap this podcast up. I have a few questions which are like, uh, not about the action itself, but as a fan experience, how we view the sport. 
like our bread and butter, the stuff we talk about on phone. And uh, so I wanted to bring it here. So when did the World Cup became the prime obsession of the sport? I know, you know, from red ball and test match, cricket being a huge focus, even in the Lloyd Richards years. Uh, what, what Was there a moment or two when World Cup became the tournament or the event in, in cricket universe that all teams, you know, or all, or, or all great teams wanted to have their hands on the World Cup? Uh, can, can you remember a time or a moment when, when this became a reality? Or maybe gradually, it just probably didn't happen overnight. What are your thoughts? Uh, it's a it's a great question because it can be answered in both ways because we have to think about how it was perceived back then. See, if you look at the 1975 start, the World Cup, it was a condensed tournament in the middle of the summer and then uh, West Indies were crowned the world champions, the best one-day side back then. But back then, one-day cricket was still internationally only four years old uh, because 71 for the 70-71 during the MCG test when the game was washed out. They had the middle of the test match to play that one-day game. But then, interestingly, West Indies went to South Africa, so Australia in 75-76, a few months later, they were thrashed 5-1. Um, so no one says that, you know, they were the world champions, they were thrashed. It was all, it was a great side that was thrashed and everything, you know, Lloyd took offense to it and then they started having the India chased 400 out down. Uh, in Trinidad in 76 and then he had a, a quicks unleashed on the Indians at Sabana Park and that's that's how the whole genesis started. So I don't think the 75 World Cup was the biggest. I think 79 uh, yeah it's a great thing because it kind of cemented their legacy as the greatest one day side or the best side but even now if you look at historically the, their win uh, West Indies first ever test series win in Australia later that summer, 1780s, considered the most significant moment because that was the first ever series win in Australia. Um, I think, like, players would have really played very well, but I think Test cricket was the ultimate thing. 83 was interesting because, again, there's another tournament in England uh, and the Indian win changed the dynamics. You know, Indians kind of felt like, you know, probably it gave that great underdog story, right? Like, a little bit what, Greece felt in the Euros 2004, uh, an underdog could go on to win a tournament by beating the might of the West Indies. Um, and then the, the fact that the West Indies wanted revenge on India uh, the following year or the, the latter part of the year when they toured India kind of tells you that they were hurt and stung um, by the tournament. But again, India toured England in 1982, the summer before, um, as I said in the previous question, um, India was a test match side. Did India think about the 1982 tour of England as, oh, it's a, a reconnaissance mission for us to look at the grounds and angles to know about the conditions uh, for the following summer for the World Cup? I don't think so. Uh, so I don't think it was like a, back then it was a four-year cycle for people to be planning for it. Perhaps 87 World Cup was a start of something because for the first time you move it out of uh, England reluctantly. And then... Um, yeah, look, I think, uh, again, West Indies, people like Malcolm Marshall and Gordon Greenwich said they were too tired to come to India to play a, a World Cup. Gabba was not available. Ian Botham wasn't available. So even in 87, some of the West Indies and some of the England players skipped the tournament. So a football World Cup means the best players play. Same thing with the Rugby World Cup. So 
perhaps the fact that it was happening in India and Pakistan that forced it, but still, I wouldn't say. Probably you could argue the 92 World Cup was the biggest because first time lights, um, colored clothing, you could say that. Uh, with South Africa being introduced, it became a little more competitive. Um, by then, it was the fifth edition. But uh, look, I would like to throw a counter-argument. The crowds were abysmally poor for the 92 World Cup, except when Australia played. India versus Pakistan at the ACG was 11,000 people in a 40,000 capacity stadium. India versus South Africa, the Adelaide had 5,000 people. Like, look, if you if that is a pinnacle of the tournament, pinnacle of the sport, you should have better crowds. But that's a different topic. So <clears throat> probably you could say 92 to some extent, but 96 could be the best one because proper commercialization, TV becoming bigger, World Tell coming to, you know, making Tendulkar the biggest superstar and the bigger commentators coming from, for the first time, Richie Benno commentated in India. He had never commented it for a, a, a you know, test series. So Channel 9 partnering with uh, World Tell. I would say from a commercial perspective, probably between 92 and the 96 was probably the the, the start. Um, but again, uh, it's very hard to compare uh, cricket with other sports because there is a test format till recently. We didn't have a test championship. So the pinnacle, whether it's test cricket or one day World Cup, it's kind of become, I think by 99, people started to look at 96, 99, uh, people started to look at World Cup as a big thing, I would say. Um, yeah, look, I think I would say between 92 and 96 was probably the time it really, really became uh, big. And 96 from a commercial perspective, 92 is from the you know, the lights and others. It made it a spectacle. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe we needed TV and other things to make it think. Uh, yeah, I'd like to believe probably 96, uh, Sakib, or maybe 92. No, fair enough. So I know you're a big football fan and you also watch a lot of rugby. Uh, so where does, uh, in your fandom, and this is more like an opinion question, uh, where does Cricket World Cup rank in terms of organization, uh, watchability, uh, how smoothly the tournament is run, overall aura, if that's a thing, compared to FIFA and rugby. I know uh, some people will say cricket is not played by many countries. That's fine, but still, there is a lot of money involved. How how sophisticated has operations become? And this is as a fan, by reading and watching from far. Uh, I would say, I think... FIFA World Cup is is a different beast, right? They've got big qualifying, a proper structure, uh, continental-wise, and then they choose a country. Of course, when they hosted it in Qatar and Russia for the last two times, kind of tells you that they are as corrupt or as, um, as anyone else. But I think they've got the big fandom, traveling fans and stuff. I think rugby is an interesting comparison because technically, cricket makes more TV money than rugby because of um, because of the, uh, you know, the 23% of the population, the world's population lives in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and India brings 80% of the revenue with India's literally a one sport country with a huge appetite for consumption of cricket. Uh, and then the big corporate conglomerates knowing very well how that feeds into that. So I think from that perspective, cricket is quite unique because though it's played in a few countries, the Indian appetite for Indian eyeballs and the Indian corporate conglomerates and their uh, their spending power and the consumption makes it a massive thing. I don't think football even has 
Brazil or Germany or England dominating like that from a commercial perspective. Um, but then, um, but then if you look at it, the thing is rugby, right? There are more traveling fans. They they are, they travel a lot more, and they fill up. Like for example, I tweeted the other day uh, uh, in Bordeaux in France, there were forty two thousand people at the uh, Samoa versus Chile game. Technically speaking, Samoa is a small little island in the Pacific, South Pacific here. Um, and then Chile is playing its first ever rugby tournament, World Cup tournament from South America. 42,000 people in France. Now it's for the Women's World Cup here in Sydney. Between France and uh, Jamaica, there were 40,000 people that night. Women's World Cup. Now, you don't get that sort of crowds in football, cricket World Cups unless India plays or the host tournament plays. That's a problem in cricket. So, People don't travel. I think the counter-argument is rugby. If you look at it, they're all wealthy countries. England, Scotland, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, uh, South Africa is a middle-income country. So it's played in a lot of wealthy countries with a lot of <clears throat> disposable income for their fans to be able to travel, right, with all the travel costs and stuff. So that kind of gives rugby a different flavor. Cricket, if you look at it, English fans travel, but they travel more for the Barmy Army and Test cricket. Few of them travel for... Uh, one-day cricket World Cups. And similarly in Australia, not many travel. Indian fans travel from India as well, but more Indians travel from US and UK, the expat Indians who earn in foreign currency. But they travel to ICC tournaments, right? So it's kind of like Indian fans fill up grounds in Australia as well as in the UK we saw in 2019 and 15 or even in the 2020 World Cup. Uh, but, you know, still we don't get too many Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and Sri Lankans traveling. Their expat population is tiny compared to the Indian too fill up big grants, 40,000, 50,000. I think that's one challenge. Um, and then like uh, in terms of organization, I would say rugby, I mean, the way 2023 World Cup is organized, which is like shambolic, you know, tickets were at least so late, schedule was changed so many times. Of course, there was an element of Pakistan and the uncertainty, but still, in my opinion, BCCI and ICC should have done a much better job. I don't think we get such hiccups in a, in a FIFA World Cup or in a rugby World Cup, but of course, you could argue that the corruption was the reason why Australia didn't get the 2022 free for World Cup and went to Qatar, which had some issues in terms of moralistic and political and other things. So if you ask me to compare, I would say football and, I mean, um, rugby a little more professional. But cricket has been organized reasonably well in England and Australia, though uh, it depends on the scale, right? Um, you, But the TV, the, the sheer TV numbers from an Indian perspective is what gives cricket the the cutting edge or uh, you know it gives you a lot more teeth than a sport like rugby which is played in more spread out places like japan to europe to a couple of south american countries to uh, you know sides like italy and then the traditional powers um uh, yeah look i think they get on an average rugby gets around 27 to 28000 crowds per game per world cup I think cricket is around eighteen to 20,000. So that's a bit of a surprise because though World Cups have happened in uh, Australia, bigger grounds, India, England may not be the biggest grounds with good crowds. So on an average, rugby is able to fill up their grounds much better for their 80-minute rugby World Cup games, even ahead of the T20 World Cups, which is three hours and then 50 was a little longer. So in that way, I think cricket World Cups could do better in terms of attracting more fans and make it more marketable for the local population than relying on TV money. I think that's where they're doing a better job. And of course, FIFA World Cup is at a different level.
Uh, in a way, you answered the last question I had in mind, but I'm going to still try to put a slightly different spin and get you to weigh in, and then we can wrap the show. A friend of mine who's a listener of the podcast, actually a colleague of mine, uh, I, I don't want to name anyone here. So we were just chatting about the organizational gymnastics BCCI is conducting right now in, you know, uh, how fans are complaining about tickets, and I'm sure there's more to come. So he said something very profound. He said, look, I want India to win. Uh, and I want Indian team to do well. BCC has done a lot of good work at the ground level, but they should never be allowed to host an ICC event because they just don't learn from the past. So th- this is a loaded question. I think Sharda Ogra talked about this uh, in the Bits and Pieces podcast. I recommend everyone who hasn't listened to that podcast, go listen. I mean, Sharda doesn't need an endorsement. You, you put her name, uh, people start downloading, uh, no matter who the host is. And Bits and Pieces were, you know, the host, Prashant, uh, Vipul, and Nitin were superb. But the same question to you. Uh, you live in Australia. Again, you already put context. You know, there's uh, the chicken or egg thing, right? Uh, certain certain economies are more suited to host these kind of events. But uh, BCCI, there's no shortage of money. So ticket is one aspect. And travel logistics between the tournament is also not a popular entity when BCCI is hosting. So from far, what's your view on this? Are we being too harsh that BCCI shouldn't host an ICC event? Of course, coming from a place of love and passion, because fans do feel betrayed. Uh, where do you draw the line in this kind of criticism? And uh, are you like everyone else? Are you continue to be appalled at the incompetence that keeps coming out from one of the richest sports bodies in the world? Uh I came to Australia in 2008. Um, in 2010, the Delhi Commonwealth Games happened. You know, I was still a very, you know, you know, I, I was in Australia for 18 months, but uh, India hosting a Commonwealth Games was a massive thing. Um, but every day we got those reports about shambolic planning and delays and Australian press was full of that. And they had their TV morning host, hosts who were sent over to Delhi to be there to host the events and yet nothing was ready. And the joke at the Fox Sports where I had some friends who had, were building those six channels for the thing, they said, we were ready. India, Delhi is not ready. From that, I thought that was the the worst one could get to, the lowest one could get to in terms of organizing a, an event. Of course, Commonwealth Games has got a lot more logistical challenges, multiple sports and cricket. But India having hosted the 87, 96 and 2011 World Cups, a couple of, I mean, 11 was through ICC, I thought India would be better prepared with all the digital economy, the UPI and payments, um, you know, all the modern, I mean, you know, I've not been in India recently, but people tell me everywhere you go, the QR codes and stuff. So with the digital, uh, you know, the country being on the, on the far forward march in terms of technological advance, I thought BCCI being with so much money, they would be advanced. But for them to come out and say, we can't have QR codes installed, readers, safety issue, duplicate, duplicates, and then therefore you get the tickets, but still you have to come and collect it the day before, or I will send it through by post only to an Indian address. It's 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 unacceptable in 2023. How could you have so much money and India being an IT power and India having hosted other big events? How could you say that you can't have QR code tickets, which can be delivered directly to the phones and people could use that? In a country where, you know, people, every street side shops have QR codes, the richest cricket board can't have it. You just can't make up that shit. Pardon my French. So that's unacceptable. And then the other problem is, why was the schedule delayed so much? Uh, 
yeah, India might not have the the operational clockwise precision of Germany or England or Australia, but India has done it before, right? You know, 2011 and other World Cups. So why would they have to delay so much? And that means literally foreign tourists can't fly over there, get the visas and be there on time for the World Cup and get tickets. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm disappointed that a lot, a lot of the neutral games not involving India. I'm afraid we'll have a lot of empty seats because these are big 40, 50,000 capacity stadiums. And yeah, sure, Indian fans can fill up, but how much can they fill up? And, you know, they also have to plan and travel and flights and stuff. In Ahmedabad, we are told um, for the Narendra Modi Stadium, India-Pakistan Games, they're booking, what, uh, hospital beds for instead of hotels because hotels and Airbnb have gone through the roof. So that's something that's completely unacceptable and with no checks and balances from ICC and ICC not holding BCCI accountable from what we have read from the Sharda Ugra piece, Jay Shah, the BCCI secretary, is holding uh, the fort rather than Roger Bini, the BCCI president, or Saurav Ganguly prior to that. So if Jay Shah is not listening to uh, former cricketers like Roger Bini or uh, Saurav Ganguly, who are well-meaning people, there is a problem in the system, right? Um, forget nepotism, right? Cricket has always had nepotism, politics and stuff. So I don't care who Jay Shah's father is. The only thing I care about is if Jay Shah is the secretary of BCCI, he's got one job to get the job done of running a, a Cricket World Cup. And he's got consultants, he's got former players, he's got experts. And if he's not leveraging all of that to run a show and he has to be accountable, it doesn't matter what's his last name and who his father is. I think that's what I'm disappointed with BCCI. I'm from the reports. It's not Roger Bini or Saro Ganguly prior to that. So I think, unfortunately, we have to blame him uh, as a leader for not taking the responsibility. And we had to blame ICC for not holding BCC accountable, right? The big three revenue, 80%, we get all of that. But if it's an ICC run event, they are supposed to take control over and let the host know that they need to have this. Even right now, I think the pitches committee have reviewed the Dharamsala outfield and they felt the clay contents or the outfield was a lot, you know, a lot of fungus infested. How could that happen? We had a similar problem not long ago in Dharamsala. So you know the weather pattern. You're playing it in October, uh, in winter. And as a host board, India should have known these local conditions better. You know, I mean, to me, with so many things faltering, I'm really disappointed that it, again, it's, it's, it gives me a bit of worry that this could become a, similar to a Commonwealth case. The only difference is once a game starts, crowds will flock and people will forget and move on. But this doesn't give any credibility to BCCI's true leadership or India's standing as a as a cricket power because India is still a cricket power based on the money they generated a, a world class team. But if the organization is so shambolic, it doesn't augur well for them as a as a powerhouse. America would not do that in basketball or in Olympics where they win a lot, they have money, but they know how to organize. I think that's where someone has to be disappointed. But it's a very interesting thing I've noticed, Sake. Um, some of the Indian cricket fans I see on Twitter on real life, they're able to segregate between BCCI and the Indian cricket team. Doesn't matter when the rules are tweaked like they were for the Asia Cup uh, between India and Pakistan with an extra day. They made a lot of noise, but I didn't see anyone saying not in my name. Or So it's, there seems to be a good demarcation in the Indian fans' mindset between what BCCI stands for and what the cricket team, technically they work for BCCI, but they have a, this distinction which is quite unique, but in Australia and England, I would say it's a little different, but again, it's cultural, but 
that seems to be the fandom that that's able to criticize BCCI, but they're still very, very supportive of their cricket team, which technically represents BCCI more than India. That's a very good, I think, I would say, study for psychologists and anthropologists to figure out why it is. That's for another day. The spot is a little too yeah. broad for that. But that's that's something we could look at it as well. No, I asked Shah the same question. I think Prashant asked the same question in this episode of Bits and Pieces, that uh, some of us do have a hard time separating the two. Uh, but yeah, what you mentioned, the hospital beds, I mean, that's just beyond shame. Uh, that should never be the case. But that's where we are at. And I'll sign off by saying, uh, how can you go bad uh, in terms of organization compared to a World Cup you hosted 12 years ago? But, you know, that's uh, par for the course for BCCI. So yeah, those who listen to the show, drop you know, drop in a feedback to me and Vijay on Twitter. So love to know your thoughts and we'll probably do a couple more episodes uh, before the World Cup or during the World Cup. Signing off here, Sakib and Vijay. Thanks for listening. Vijay, uh, good comeback. Thank you very much, Sakib. Sakib, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much.